title for you this morning is Christ, our Passover. Christ, our Passover. Let me begin by saying this. The Old and New Testaments are often thought of as disjointed, unrelated sections of the same book. Sometimes it's even argued that they portray two different gods, the Old Testament having a God of wrath and the New Testament having a God of love, but nothing could be further from the truth. The same God who inspired the authors of the Old Testament is the same God who inspired the authors of the New Testament. So they're related, and what is concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. Ajit Fernandez has it right, I think, when he comments, and I quote, Sadly, Christians today, especially evangelical Christians, do not give very high place to the pivotal events that undergird our faith. The implication there is that we don't give the Old Testament its due credit in that the New Testament is built upon, you guessed it, The Old Testament. Now, of course, I'm talking about other churches, not this one. We're giving our due credit to the Old Testament. But you can understand, I think, whether it be through personal experience or through exposure, how the New Testament tends to get the preponderance of attention from Christians while the Old Testament gets very little. It doesn't mean that the relationship is always clearly understood, however, The Old Testament and the New Testament are both important, and they need to be considered as two sides of the same coin. Things unfolded through time and through history. And what the saints saw dimly in the past, we see clearly, because Christ has come. His person and his work have been revealed to us, and therefore, We see things from a different perspective than the Old Testament saints did. In one such way that progress is demonstrated is in the feasts and festivals of the Old Testament. And today we begin a short three-week stint in Deuteronomy chapter 16 as we look at three such examples today beginning with Passover. Today I want to speak to you with three simple points and tell you why Christ is our Passover, and why, since that is the case, we're no longer obligated to participate in or practice the Passover feasts. Let me begin this morning with our first point, its origin. Its origin. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 1, we see its origin. This is recounted or restated to us by God through Moses and to the people. Look at it with your eyes as I read. It says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt by night, and you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. Now, if you have any familiarity with your Old Testament at all whatsoever, then you know that the Exodus is the pivotal redemptive act of the Old Testament. God does many miraculous works in the life of his people. He works through his prophets, his priests, and his kings. But everything that God does is done in view of the Mosaic law, which was given after the redemptive 
redemptive act of God in the history of his people, and that was the Exodus, the leading of his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, the house of Egypt. And so we see in Exodus chapters 12 and 13 the climax of what is a period of judgment in Egypt. Now, Egypt, under the leadership and headship of Pharaoh, has rebelled against God. God sent his prophet Moses to say, let my people go that they may worship me when and where I want them to. And Pharaoh said, sure, I'll do it. No, I changed my mind. And we see these series of events, these conflicts happen to the culmination of the 10th plague, which is what is described in Exodus chapters 12 and 13. That 10th plague is the climax of God's judgment in the land of Egypt. But God has protected his people through this judgment. While he has unfolded or unleashed judgment in Egypt, his people have not been affected. Not by the blood, not by the frog, not by the flies, not by the gnats, not by any of the plagues that have unfolded so far. And so it is in the 10th plague. God says, I will be sending the angel of the Lord who will go through the land of Egypt and he will take the life of every firstborn. That is the judgment that God is unleashing on the land of Egypt. However... God has made a provision for his people who by faith participate in this feast that we call Passover. God said, sacrifice an unblemished lamb and place the blood of this sacrificed unblemished lamb on the doorposts of your house. And when the angel of the Lord descends to bring judgment on the land of Egypt, when it sees the blood on the doorposts, it will pass over that house That is the origin of this story. That is the origin of this feast. And so early in the history of Israel, we see God's redemptive purpose and plan unfolding in the life of his people. And yet, they are reminded on a regular basis of the origin of this because beginnings matter. Amen? This is something God doesn't want them to forget. And so he brings it to their attention after reminding them of the origin. And then we see in the next few verses, it's practice. So let's go to the second point. We've learned and rediscovered the origin of this Passover. Let's go now to its practice. Now this is important for us to consider as well because we should not only know the origin of Passover... But we should also know how it is supposed to be performed. Like so many other things in the Bible, when God gives Passover commands, he's specific about them. For example, it's to be practiced in the month of Abib, or Nisan, as it will later be referred to in the Old Testament. That's March, April. It doesn't specify it here, but in other places when Passover is discussed, We are told that it is to be participated on the 14th day of the month. And some of the reasons are deeply theological and spiritual, and other reasons are practical. So let's share a few of those points now. First, 
there are theological and spiritual reasons for the way it is practiced. For one, it's a time of judgment in Egypt, but there's a caveat. We've already discussed this. If the Jews faithfully follow the protocol that God had prescribed, then they would be passed over. The judgment would not happen in their house. But judgment doesn't simply evaporate into thin air. There must be a payment for sin. I'm going to say this again, and I hope that you'll consider what is being said for a moment because of its seriousness. There must be a payment for sin. And you know what sin is? Sin is a breach of God's law. And we can commit sin, whether by action or inaction. We are guilty of sins when we do things that we ought not do, but we are also guilty of sin when we fail to do things that we ought to do. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. He uses two different words there. One word meaning that we strive to meet the mark, but we fall short of it. And another word that means God said, here's the line and you will not cross, and we trespassed the line. We went past the line. Church, we are all, each and every one of us, guilty of this. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? There are none righteous, it says in Romans 3.10. None, not even one. That's you, that's me, that's our grandparents, that's our most favorite person in the world. It doesn't matter who it is, each and every person is guilty of sin, and so it was in Egypt. They had been given opportunity after opportunity to repent and to respond to the word of God, which they refused to do, and as a result, Judgment is coming upon the land. That is a theological and spiritual lesson that we must appreciate when it comes to the practical implications of Passover. There are a lot of Christians today who have issue with this, and I don't know that I blame them. Judgment is a difficult teaching to swallow, amen? When we think of the judgment of God, it is difficult for us to grasp it but here is the, re the reality of this truth, church. Sin must be judged by a three-time holy God who has placed standards on his creation, expectations of his creation. If he were not to bring justice, then he would be unjust. And if he were unjust, he could not be holy. This is at least one thing that we're learning from this point. Verse 3 tells us that this was to be practiced because they were to, and I quote, remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Church, we would be crazy if we were to ruminate on our past and on our forgiven sins. But we would also be crazy to not appreciate the history from which we have been delivered. Amen? That's a difficult line to walk, but I think this is part of why God has instilled the things that he has into our faith. 
God doesn't want us to ruminate on things so that we have anxiety and trepidation and, and, a, and a lack of confidence and assurance in the fact that God loves us and we're forgiven and we will spend eternity with him. But we can't click our heels as if we were never sinners and that heaven is better because of us. That's not the truth either. We've got to have an awareness of what God has delivered us from, but not such an awareness that we have an unhealthy sensitivity to those things. God has them practicing this once a year so that they will remember, not that they were horrible, but that they were delivered. Not that they were slaves, but that they were freed. And the reality of the matter is, church, we sometimes can err on one side or the other, On the other hand, we should never relish God's judgment on someone. We shouldn't play down the justice of God either. Somehow, someway, Christ's command to us in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged, has to inform our attitudes, our disposition towards people. It would be wrong for us to expect God to compromise his justice. It would also be wrong for us to click our heels when we saw it done. Yes, do we want to see God's justice enacted? Yes. Do we want to see God's justice enacted on the wicked and the unrighteous? Yes. Do we, do we want to forget those things, overlook those things, dilute, dilute the truth of God's word because some of the teachings are difficult for us to swallow? No, we don't want to do that. We want to see God in his love but we also want to see God in his justice. But we have to remember that if it were not for our lamb, if it were not for Jesus that was slain, we would not be passed over. Judgment would be upon us too because there are none righteous, no, not one. There are theological and spiritual reasons why the Passover is important. But secondly, there are practical reasons for these instructions too. Not only theological reasons, but practical reasons as well. For example, they weren't just to participate in the Passover anywhere or anytime or anyhow. It had to be, verse 2 says, the place that the Lord will choose he says it again in verse 6. The place that the Lord will choose. Say this with me. The place that the Lord will choose. In other words, God's people are to obey God's prescription for worship. Say that again. God's people are to obey God's prescription for worship. God has not put out ballots He has not taken a poll. He doesn't care what your opinion is on worship. He's not asking you. He's telling you. This is how you do worship. Wait, 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 wait. I I want a veto. We don't have the option. God says, I am the one who prescribes how things will be done and when. You say, yes, Lord, I am here to serve. We don't look at this and say, okay, well, you give me sort of broad parameters, and I'll do it whenever I want, however I want. God says, this is what it means. This is how it will be performed. And no, you can't do it at home. 
You got to do it together. You got to do it together. I think this is an important point for us in 2023, church. When perhaps Hebrews 10, 25 is the most relevant, you shall not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but you shall come together and spur each other on in love and good deeds. This is why we come together. To spur each other on in love and in good deeds. Love of whom? Love of what? Love of God and love of neighbor. And good deeds to each other and to our community. Because this is following the example of footsteps that the Lord himself, our Savior Jesus Christ, who said the greatest among you shall be the servant of all, has placed for us. And we do not have the allotment or the allowance to say, I disagree with the way God has prescribed church. I disagree with the way that God has prescribed worship. I believe that I can worship from home. I'm not really Christian. I'm just spiritual. The reality of the matter is most of the people who say nonsensical foolishness like that are just full of excuses. They refuse to be obedient to God. They're not smart. They're disobedient. They're not wise. They're in rebellion. Now, I know that there are some people who can't get here regularly. And I know that there is such a thing as a vacation. I've heard of it. But I'm not addressing those things. Don't take an exception to the rule and say, Joe yelled at everybody today. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are those people who, aware of God's word, still refuse to be obedient to God's word which says, come together and worship me, together. We see it here as a practice prescribed by God in Deuteronomy chapter 16. As early as Moses, we see God telling his saints, come together. No, you can't do it however you want. I'll tell you how it's going to get done. Now, some people say, I just don't like your preaching. Okay. And some people say, you know, I, 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 you're too loud. Okay. Or your 45, 50-minute sermons are just too much. What I'm, I'm not looking for all that. Okay. The majority of the time, friends, that's not the case. The majority of the time, people who stop going to church here and blame it on me end up going to church nowhere. Well, we're going over here. No, you're not. I know all the pastors in the city. I serve on the board. I'm a board member at the Miami Baptist Association. I know everyone. You're not going to church there. The reality of the matter is, is you're not accountable to me. And if I am not the pastor that God has given to you to grow you in the nurture, admonition, and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, find a pastor who does. I'm not building Joe's kingdom. I'm building Christ's kingdom. That's not to say I think we're doing a bad job, by the way. I'm just saying I'm just, I'm just one servant in a giant vineyard of servants, and this vineyard belongs to our Father. If you are growing in the admonition and love of Jesus Christ in another church, I'm happy for you. 
I'm not bitter. I'm not resentful. I'm not angry. But don't sell me lies, man. Find a church where you're going to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ and for the love of God, get growing. Get obedient. But you will not have it your way. And we will not do that here. Why not? Because there are practical lessons to the way in which worship is to be conducted. And we do not make up the rules. We follow the rules. And he says, come together. And when you come together, you will come together. It says in verse 2 and in verse 6, the place that the Lord will choose. And today, on this side of the cross, the Lord chooses church. We don't worship just anywhere, anyhow, or anyone. We worship Jesus Christ with his people in church. Church, don't neglect to obey the commands of God when it comes to worship. Another practical point here is found in the way that they are not to place leaven in the bread for this period of time. They are to make bread without leaven. And the reason this is, church, is because God gave them the Passover on the anticipation of the exodus. And when you read Exodus chapter 12, he says, this is how you shall eat it. You will roast it. You will have your tunic tied with the belt around your waist. You will not put leaven in the bread. Your sandals will be on your feet. And when you eat, you will eat with haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It's a very challenging and exciting passage of Scripture that if you read it without a bigger picture, you miss the import of what is being said. But what God is saying is this. Have your clothes on because I'm coming. Get ready because I'm coming. The way Jesus says it in the New Testament is like this. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Have your lamps trimmed because you know not the hour when the master of the house comes. That's what our Lord is telling us. Be ready. I'm coming. Be ready. Church, let me ask you, are you ready? It's not a question of, is the Lord coming? It's when. When is he coming? Any moment. We're in the last days, the apostle John says. Children, we are in the last days. Look around at what's happening Look around at the churches that are compromising and the evil leaders that are being placed in places of influence. It is unfolding before our eyes, children. We are in the last days. Are you ready? Are you ready? Do you live with a readiness to be delivered from the world? to be delivered from sin, even your own sin, from yourself, from your trials, from your troubles. Are you ready? We're not sitting around waiting for the bread to rise. That's what God's saying. We don't have time for the bread to rise. Save the leaven. Put it aside. It's to be nowhere in your sight. You are to be, what's the word? Ready. Are you living with a holy anticipation 
of what God will do? That's a good question to consider. Are you living with a holy anticipation of what God will do? I'm not talking about your worry and your anxiety and, 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 your, and your concern over this project or that project. I'm talking about a holy anticipation. God, what are you going to do today? God, 101 things are going wrong, but I'm interested in what you're going to do. I know you're a great God. What are you going to do in my life today or this week? I love what Psalm 55, 16 says. I call on God, and the Lord will save me. That's a pretty easy verse to memorize. But it is a straightforward verse that reminds us the Lord is not only capable to save, but our focus should be on calling him. Do you call? Do you live a life of holy excitement and anticipation, readiness for deliverance? As Christians, we have a fullness of hope and an assurance of salvation. And that hope and salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And this leads to our final point this morning, which is its fulfillment. We've looked at the origin of the Passover. We've looked at the practice of the Passover. Finally, I want to bring to your attention the fulfillment of this Passover. Now for this, I'm going to invite you to the New Testament. And we're going to go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. I'll give you a moment to get there. Hebrews chapter 10, and there's four points that I want to share with you from Hebrews chapter 10. Under this final point, it's fulfillment. Hebrews chapter 10. When you're there, let me know by saying amen. If you'll read with your eyes as I read aloud, this is Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these things, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is found in Psalm 40. When he said above... You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. 
These are offered according to the law, by the way. Then he adds, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. I'm going to put this in the vernacular here. He does away with the old to establish the new. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, how often? Once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's already been concluded. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Finally, and most importantly, the fulfillment of Passover. We see glimpses of this early in the New Testament, friends. John the Baptist begins his preaching, and in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, it records that John the Baptist, seeing Jesus comes, coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, the world being a phrase, meaning no distinction between Jew or non-Jew. It doesn't mean world as in everyone, because that would be universalism, and universalism is not taught in the Bible. But it doesn't have a distinction anymore. He's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. The Apostle Peter tells Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that they haven't been saved by things like silver and gold. They have been saved by the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, throughout the New Testament, there is this repetitive theology that is presented to Christians, namely, that the fulfillment of the Old Testament was found not in another sacrifice, not in another system, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come and say, my father made a mistake with this system. Jesus didn't come and say, well, that was one option. Here I am, plan B. No, Jesus came and he accomplished the system. He fulfilled the system. He did on our behalf what we could not do because our flesh was weak, not because God's system was wrong. By faith in Jesus, we fulfill that system because he did so on our behalf. In particular this morning, as we look at Passover, what I want us to look at are four things that I see in Hebrews chapter 10 when we see that the Passover or the sacrificial system at large was fulfilled in the person of Jesus when he offered himself as a sacrifice. Looking at verse 1, we learn, first of all, chapter 10, verse 1, that the law was a shadow, but not the fullness. 
We have a lot of people who have Jewish background or people who come into the faith of Christianity and have an interest or fascination with the Jewish background. And sometimes they say, why aren't we participating in the things that the saints of the Old Testament did? And the answer for that is very simple. Those things were a shadow of the thing to come, but Christ is the fullness. If we participate in the Mosaic law, we're not going back far enough because Paul's argument in Galatians chapter three is this. If you go back to Moses, you didn't go back far enough because before Moses, there was Abraham and Abraham was justified by faith. So the reality of the matter is, is we are children of Abraham. Moses didn't get it wrong. He just served a different purpose in the seasons of God's redemption. Sure, we learn from the law. Of course, there are aspects of the law that still to this day we appreciate and we observe the moral aspects unquestionably. But Christ fulfilled the law. It was a shadow, as it were, but Christ was the fullness. The second thing that I want you to note is this. A special sacrifice was necessary for our eternal salvation. Emphasis on the word eternal. This is not something that's done periodically or with regularity. We learn in verse 4 and following that when Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice, he doesn't have to do it again and again and again and again. He does it once, which is why I am emphatically against the Mass. In the Mass, taught by Roman Catholicism, every time the Mass is performed, the body and blood of Jesus is re-crucified. He dies again so that the belief of transubstantiation can be performed. The cracker becoming the body, the wine becoming the blood. That's not taught in the Bible, and therefore we don't believe it. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, that having conquered death, he dies no more. Jesus cannot die again. It doesn't matter how fancy the building is or how fancy the garb is that the priest is wearing. Now, I'm not saying that if someone is a Catholic, they are not Christians. But what I am saying is that there are Christians who are Catholic in spite of Catholicism. Because the Catholicism teaches Catholicism. It doesn't teach biblical gospel. It's teaching, oh, you need to come to Mass. It doesn't say, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's the sufficiency, church. We don't believe in the sacrifices of a priest doing for us what we need for eternal salvation. We believe that Christ, our high priest, has done it once and for all. Why would we trade a Mosaic system for a Roman Catholic system? It makes no sense, but it's the same thing. And it's still done today. The reality of the matter is, if we look back to the Mosaic system and build tradition on top of the plainly taught word of God, then we are distorting and disrupting the message that God has for us. The law was a shadow of things to come. Number one. And number two, a special sacrifice was necessary for our eternal salvation. And that special sacrifice was Christ. Third, after that, that special sacrifice was made, 
Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is not only, friends, this is not only a picture of his authority. He's seated at the right hand of God. But I want you to look at this word, seated. I want you to see this word, seated. Just go back to Hebrews chapter 10 for me and look at verse 11. Every priest, what? Stands how often? Daily. Every priest stands daily. What's Jesus' posture? He's seated. You see what I mean? You see what I mean? Jesus go, I'm done. I'm done. The priest keeps, I got to stand here, and I've got to intermediate for God and people. And Jesus says, I've done it. I'm sitting down. I'm done. The work has been accomplished. The will of God has been fulfilled. Believe in me, and you will be saved. I have made the necessary sacrifice that when judgment comes, by virtue of faith in me, you will not be judged, but passed over. This is our Passover. Christ is our Passover, so that our faith in him places us in God's love rather than God's judgment. And how do we have confidence in this? We have confidence in this because while the priests stand every single day, Jesus sat down. What a beautiful tie between these two ideas. Fourthly and finally, by virtue of the fact that our faith has been placed in Jesus and we have been removed from wrath and placed in God's love, outside of judgment, but placed inside his affection. He's working on us. Say, he's working on me. (laughs) He is working on you. He is working on you. Because it isn't simply a thing of, well, okay, now you're saved. I go to sleep. He wants you to work. He wants you to grow. He wants you to ultimately reflect the character and likeness of his son who gave himself as the once and for all sacrifice for you. I want to bring this to your attention. In verse 14, a beautiful verse that doesn't present itself in the English as it does in the Greek, but what I want to share with you focuses on a play between two words. It says in verse 14, by a single offering. Now, who's the offering? Jesus. Single offering. I mean, how often can you get once for all, single, not repetitive, he sat down, the work is done? How can you miss the point, right? Jesus did it on the cross. Done. Amen? Now, by the single offering, listen, now by the single offering, he has, get this, perfected, root word hagios, meaning holy, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, same root word, hagios. This is what I want you to get. This is what I want you to get. This is one of those amazing aspects of Christianity, and and, and husbands and wives, you can look at each other and say, okay, I'm sorry. Verse 14 of Hebrews 10 is saying that in a sense, we've been perfected. And in another sense, we're being perfected. By a single offering, he has perfected, for how many times? For all time, those who are being perfected. We can can play with this a little bit. 
He, he has sanctified for all time those he is sanctifying. Or he has perfected for all time those he is perfecting. Now, some of us sometimes feel like we're having, you know, being perfected day, and then other times we feel like we're having the being perfected day. Amen? But this is the tension in what we call already not yet theology. Already not yet theology. Now, I love my family. God's blessed me with a wonderful family. No boys, but, but I've got a pretty good family. And, and I want to live a long life so I can spend time with my family and meet my grandsons. <laughs> and spend time with my wife, and we're going to get another dog in the future because dogs are amazing and cats are weird. And I want to live a long life. You read the Psalms, they're like, Lord, don't take my life early. It was, it, life is a good thing, guys. Life is good. Life is, a, life is a gift and a blessing from God. And I love spending time with my people and my family, my church. I love that. But if I were to leave today and to die, if God's appointment for me is today, as far as my salvation is concerned, it's perfected. It's done. It's already paid for. And in regards to whether or not I am God's son, I am God's son. But there's this other side. And if I continue to live, there's some things that, since I'm already God's son, God is still working on me. Like my temperament. What's so funny? You know, I'm a little impatient. Sometimes I'm selfish and inconsiderate. Don't laugh. I know, I know some of your sins too. I am his son, but he's working on me and make me more like Jesus. This is what we call the already not yet. And I hope that this is, this is something that relieves some of you because sometimes I know you get through the week and you're like, can God really love me? And the issue is this, has he set you apart? If you are a Christian, if your faith has been placed in Jesus who was sacrificed once and for all for you to the extent that it was so completed he sat down, then you're already in his family. There are no questions. You are already in his family. But, it doesn't stop there. God is working in you the family likeness so that you will resemble and do things the way that he does, your heavenly father. So sometimes we feel like we're more in the not yet than we are in the already, and sometimes we feel like we're more in the already than we are in the not yet, but this is the reality of living on this side of glory. Now, this week we lost one of our pastors, Dr. Blackwood. He was the pastor of Christ Fellowship, and he had been battling heart issues and cancer, and unfortunately, he passed this week. There's no more not yet for him. There's no more not yet for him. He's in glory today. That is something that we don't ask God about. That is something we trust God about. Now, those of us who are here, we're in the not yet. 
what will you do if you're not yet? You're already saved. Praise God. You already know that no matter what happens, you're going to go to glory. Amen. What are you going to do if you're not yet? Whatever you face this week, what are you going to do if you're not yet? I can promise you this. I love what Psalm 138 verse 8 says. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. I can tell you this. He will continue working on you. Will you work with him? Will you work with him? Yes, on your marriage. Of course, on your career. Yes, on your parenting. Yeah, of course, all those things. But you as a Christian, first and foremost, all those other things are secondary. If you work on yourself in the not yet section of your life as a Christian, if you improve as a Christian, everything else gets better. If you work on yourself as a Christian, everything else gets better. How are you going to work on your not yet this week? To close, let me say this. A lot of people have argued that the Old and New Testament are two disjointed sections of the same book, but that's untrue. What we see unclearly in the Old Testament, we see clearly after the cross. What is concealed by God in the Old through shadows and prophecy is revealed in the fulfillment of our Savior Jesus Christ who, when he finished his job, sat down. It is done. It is finished. Do you live like that? Do you pray like that? Do you love like that? Do you serve like that? Let me, let me get a little deeper. Do you worry like that? My hope for you today is that you not only leave here knowing that Christ, your Passover, was sacrificed for you, but that he's going to keep working on you because you're family now.